0: Our scripture reading this morning is uh, taken from Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, and 15 through 19. Um, In the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 816. Matthew 11, 1 through 6, and 15 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For Jesus came, neither uh, eating nor drinking, and they said, He is a demon." The Son of Man came eating and drinking, they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning, my name is Brian Sorgan Fry, one of the pastors on staff, and uh, really thankful you chose to be with us this morning. Uh, We are walking through the Gospel of Matthew this semester, and what we've been trying to say every week is that Matthew is saying that Jesus is the long-awaited, expected Messiah, our hero that's coming to rescue the whole world. So it makes you ask, like, would there be any reason to uh, reject or get angry at someone trying to rescue you? And the only two things I could come up with, the reason you would kind of reject a rescuer is if you don't really think you need help, or the way that they're trying to rescue you is different than you expect. And just like anything in life, if I start thinking about, okay, what movie does that remind me of? Everything reminds me of the greatest movie ever made in the 80s, Hoosiers, right? Because if you think about uh, Hoosiers, this little uh, basketball team and uh, the Hickory Huskers that are fledgling and they need rescue, they need change. And so they bring in this coach, Gene Hackman, Norman Dale. <coughs> it's interesting because the premise is they know they need change. They know they need help. They say they're open to it. But when this coach shows up and starts asking things of them and starts doing things differently, starts saying like five passes before you shoot, though they say they want to change, everything that he does, they keep resisting. And so, you know, by about halfway through the the, uh, movie, you start realizing they say they want a hero, but they keep rejecting him. Because they've got their own agenda. And this passage that Tim read for us, I think that's a little bit of what's going on. Because it's it's people who are saying they are following or they want a hero. But one person is getting disappointed by him. And the crowds are actually being offended. And what I want to press on this this morning is this. Will you and I admit our need of rescue and trust him for it? Because if you'll admit that, what at some point, the, the salvation that Jesus brings, at some point it's going to probably confuse you. It might even offend you. It definitely will offend your pride. And the question is going to be, will you keep trusting the hero who promises to rescue and transform you? And so just three things. We're going to look at the uh, offensive or you could even say disappointing circumstances. And then we're going to look at the offensive call to change that Jesus brings. And then we're going to look at the offensive healing that Jesus brings. All right, so uh, circumstances call to change, healing first. The offensive or disappointing circumstances. This is verse 1 through 6. I just, I appreciate the realism of the scriptures and how they deal with the real world that we live in and who we are. Because this passage wants you to know that there are lots of people that doubt Jesus and that struggle to believe his claims that he is God in the flesh and the worldwide Messiah. And what's fascinating is one of those people who begins to doubt is John the Baptist. And I want us to feel the weightiness of John's situation because who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist distinguishes him from John, one of the 12 disciples. But John the Baptist, you could say, might be the most devoted follower that Jesus has. When he was in the womb of his mother, he's the cousin of Jesus. And so when Jesus in the womb of Mary comes next to John the Baptist in the womb, it says John the Baptist leapt. So even as an embryo, he's rejoicing in Jesus. And then beginning of the semester, we saw in Matthew 3 that John the Baptist comes on the scene. So devoted is he, he's dressed like like a prophet out in the wilderness, calling the religious leaders of the day vipers and telling everybody that they need to be baptized, repent of their sins, that every part of everyone needs to be cleaned because Jesus is here, the Messiah. And then John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And when he baptizes Jesus, he hears God the Father's audible voice say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's John the Baptist. So again, if you think movies, like John the Baptist is the Chewbacca of Han Solo. Okay? He is the Dr. Watson of Sherlock Holmes. He is the goose of, uh, you know, of Maverick. Whatever like sidekick that you can think of that devoted everything to follow this person, that's John the Baptist. And yet, something happens to him over a period of time that makes him doubt the very identity of the person that he's entrusted himself to. What could make John the Baptist start to doubt? Well, it's the disappointing and dark circumstances that have enveloped his life since he started following Jesus. See, John the Baptist so devoted to Jesus that King Herod abuses his power to take his brother's wife, and John the Baptist calls him out on it and courageously does. And Les will pick this up in a couple of weeks. And, he, and so he gets put in prison and will eventually die. And so that, that's the circumstance that John who proclaims Jesus the Messiah, Messiah, finds himself in such a tough situation, he's so discouraged that he begins to doubt that he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you actually the one? Or should I follow another? He is wondering if he's hitched his, his, uh, his horse to the right wagon. So offensive and discouraging are his circumstances because what he thought his life would be like following Jesus is so different that he actually doubts. And again, you know this is how doubting works in all of our life. Nobody doubts something, their choices because circumstances are good. It's always because circumstances are discouraging, right? I worked in Camp Smith with RUF for a long time, and it was just a common theme, let's say, at Ole Miss. Four weeks before the semester would start, all Ole Miss students confident that Ole Miss would be the best fit for them. Six weeks into the semester, it was almost like you could hit a replay on the tape. This is what would happen. There would start being questions about, I don't know if Ole Miss is the right place for me. Why? Because I'm lonely, and I thought I'd have friends. Because class is more overwhelming than I thought. Because the Greek system isn't what I thought. It was all these discouraging circumstances that made people think, wait, maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe I'm not where I'm supposed to be. See? It can be with That could be true of, of a job, of a friends, or whatever it is. But discouraging circumstances make you question your choices. And that's what John the Baptist is, is happening. It's happening to him because he's been boldly telling people Jesus is the worldwide hero. He's the one that's going to set the world to right. To him, that means that he's going to dismantle all of the evil, oppressive powers like Rome. He's going to expose the religious hypocrites, take them out of power. And yet years after Jesus comes on scene, the evil powers of Rome has not been dismantled. Actually, they have him in prison. The religious hypocrites of of Jesus' day have kind of been exposed, but they're still in power. Nothing is lining up with how John the Baptist thought his life would play out as he followed Jesus as the Messiah, and it feels so backwards that he begins to doubt. He's actually tempted to give up on Jesus and look for another. And I just think Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist, who is doubting, I think... I think it should be encouraging to us all. And Ricky Jones helped me with this application here because, think about this, if John the Baptist, the devoted one, found himself doubting, shouldn't that at least encourage you if you find yourself doubting? Because I think the scriptures actually, they might surprise you at how they view doubt. Doubt on the one hand, is, it's never glorified. Uh, it's... it's, it's Doubt is never this thing that's prized as if you kind of sit in skepticism or questioning all your life. You've got this kind of uh, 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 virtue, kind of like our, our culture says. But also doubt is not like some skeleton in the closet to be ignored and be ashamed of if you're a Christian. It's never demonized. No, the Bible is actually refreshingly honest, I would say, about doubt and about how prevalent it can be. I I think it's okay to say that if John the Baptist found himself doubting Jesus' claims about who he is, then you might can expect that you'll have them in your life sometime. That doubt can actually be an expression of exploring your faith. It really can be. And if you've never doubted, again, I don't want to glorify it, but I'm not sure you've grappled with the claims of Jesus because if you like if you begin to grapple with the claims and character of Jesus and you, like what do you do with like God this God has the power to stop human trafficking and hasn't done it or stop terrorism and hasn't done it like what do you do with that or Jesus has the power to keep a loved one from dying and he didn't or I've been following Jesus and my my kids life is not like I expected to be and he has the power like that's what i mean do you grapple with that Because if you do, Scripture meets you in that kind of real struggle and welcomes you to come to Jesus. Because look what happens. John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus in doubt, and Jesus is so kind. He doesn't say, how dare you doubt. (laughs) You, You heard my father's voice. He doesn't say, come on, you know I'm in control. He just says, blessed is the one, not offended by me, which means throwing in the towel. He says, blessed are you, John. You're still, trying, you're, you're, you're still trusting me in your doubt. And John the Baptist goes to Jesus with hard, you could even say offensive circumstances. And that's the call. Go to him. Wherever you find yourself doubting, go to Jesus. And he says, blessed are you if you come to me. And don't just throw in the towel because the circumstances in your life, you, you can't figure them out. Keep trusting him. Keep trusting that he might be up to something that you can't completely understand. And he says, blessed are you. So first you see these discouraging circumstances can actually bring about doubt. But then you see this offensive call to change, right? Verse 16 through 19. So he answers John's doubt, which I'm going to come back to. And he turns to the crowds and he addresses them. He says, He who has ears, let him hear. And he says, What shall I compare this generation to? Like as as these crowds have been reacting to me, what is that like? He says, Here's the comparison. You're like children sitting in a marketplace calling out to their playmates, "Hey, we played a flute, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry, you didn't mourn." Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the crowds, you are reacting to me in childish ways. It's kind of like when kids go out and play make-believe and they say, "Hey, let's dress up for a wedding. Let's let's have a wedding." And somebody says, "I don't I, I don't I don't want to be happy." And she so say, "Okay, let, let's 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 play make-believe funeral." And that same person says, I don't want to be sad, right? At some point, it's saying, I don't think you want to be involved with this. And we all know this, right? You've experienced something like this before. It could be, you, you know, you and your group of friends might want to go eat somewhere. And somebody says, I'm up for anything. And you say, all right, let's go to South Depot. And the person's like, ah, we go there all the time. I'm kind of sick of that place. Like, okay, let's, let's you know, let's go to Taylor Grocery. Like, ah, it's too crowded. We'll have to wait in line. Like, okay, let's go to Handy Andy. It's not crowded on a Friday night. No, I don't like burgers, right? And eventually, you're like, I. You say you're open to things, but I think you're just wanting me to come do and go to the place wherever you want, right? Or, or, you have discussion with somebody who says, "Hey, I want to hear your opinion on this difficult topic." As you start talking, you realize they're not listening to you. They're just they just want to share what they think. And I think that's what Jesus interacted. With. He says, "You're." Uh, you say that you're open to me as the Messiah, but it seems that you're just wanting me to be whatever your agenda is. And so he says, that's how you keep responding to me. And then he points specifically to John the Baptist and himself, right? He's saying the specific ways that I'm showing up and making my claims, you keep rejecting, which means I think you have your own agenda. He says, look, John the Baptist, right? This is verse 18 He says, he comes preparing the way. John the Baptist is, is dressed like, a, he's a religious ascetic. He's very serious. He's calling on everybody to repent, to see every part of them needs to be made clean, be baptized, you know, fire and brimstone, uh, not drinking alcohol, eating locusts. And, and what was your response to him? Your response is you were offended. You're like, that guy has a demon. Look how, look how serious he is. Lighten up, John the Baptist. And so you dismissed him. But then Jesus says, I came to you that when the hero himself showed up, guess what, I turned water into wine. I brought joy. I came drinking alcohol, having feasts with people, meeting people where they are, having meal with prostitutes and tax collectors, healing lepers and outcasts, forgiving those people. And your response is you were offended at me. And you said, Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend to sinners. Jesus is saying, no matter how I come to you, you keep saying, you keep being offended and rejecting me. And Jesus is saying, the issue is you don't want to change. Jesus is saying, all these ways I'm coming to you, calling to receive me as your Savior, as the one who's going to transform me, I think it's you don't like how I'm calling you to change and repent. And if you realize this, like if Jesus is the hero of the world that's going to transform everything, it means following him means he's going to offend you. He's going to offend me because he's going to call for change in our life. Have you experienced this, right? Some of you probably love the passages of Jesus changing the water into wine, showing he gently removes the shame of a prostitute, uh, forgives the tax collector uh, Zacchaeus and sits with him. And you're like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus is relational, and Jesus wants me to be involved in people's lives. He wants me to have fun. He want, he, you know, he wants me to watch the movies that other people to watch. He doesn't want me to be some buzzkill, some weirdo. He wants me to be relational. Yes, but then the John the Baptist and the Jesus who says actually what you do with your bodies matter, what you do on your weekends matter, how you talk to people it matters because all that's trying to live independent of me. And he says repent. That Jesus, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why so serious? That, that sounds pharisaical. Where's all this grace stuff? It's not like I'm going crazy like those people. And we get offended. Others, of you, you, you gravitate towards the, the, the passages about, um, about holiness, about being a good witness for Jesus, staying pure, right? How, how, are, how are we going to change the world if we're just like the world and watch the same things that the world does? We need to make an impact on others. And we hear Jesus... Uh, like that, we're like, yes, exactly. Jesus, tell the world they need to be better, and 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 we just assume that Jesus is fed up with the same people that we are. But then the Jesus that gets drawn towards messy people, people who can't get their life together, and he keeps forgiving them and is patient with them, and he's gentle and lowly at heart. That Jesus looks at us and says, "Well, why don't you? Why don't you eat with others?" Why are the people that are drawn to Jesus repelled by you? It might be that you are exclusive. It might be that you think that you're better than them. And that becomes really offensive because I'm thinking they're the ones that need to repent, not me. And Jesus will offend that. Jesus, the rescuer, he will offend you unless you're perfectly in line with Jesus. And I don't think any of us are, including me, because he's rescuing and putting the world back together again. But he's starting by rescuing us from ourselves. As he rescues us from ourselves, which means he rescues us from wanting it to have it our way, whether that looks like self-righteousness and being better than other people, or whether it looks like simply living it up and doing doing it however I want. It's all trying to be independent of him. And he's saying, trust me, I'm calling you to repentance, because I'm calling you to trust me in all of your life. So has Jesus ever offended you? Honestly. Because if he hasn't, I really don't think you've met the real Jesus. Because he rescues us from us. And he's going to keep confronting us, because a life with him is a life of repentance, continually. Because he's going for complete transformation. And he's saying, you can trust me. So you see that these these kind of offensive and disappointing circumstances that come to to us sometimes make us doubt. And you can see that the very thing that he's saving you from ourselves becomes offensive because we don't want everything about us to change. But there's really good news because he's a healer. But even the way he heals is offensive, right? Look, where does John go as he's doubting his circumstances, right? He comes to Jesus and look what Jesus does. There's two things that happen. First, when he goes to Jesus with his doubt, Jesus' response is verse four. He says, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, lepers are cleansed, poor of good news, preach to them. What did Jesus do? Jesus just squished, squished together a bunch of verses from, uh, from the book of Isaiah. In the whole book of Isaiah, is building a picture of the Messiah to come who is Jesus. And so Jesus' response to John the Baptist's doubts is, hey, go look at the scriptures. Think about the Bible. I'm actually lining up exactly with what the scriptures say. I'm fulfilling them. So Jesus meets John the Baptist's doubts by saying, read the Bible, listen to the Bible. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in the 18th century uh, in Massachusetts. And after talking to some people about the need for revival in his hometown, uh, one of his constituents kind of responded incredulously and said, Why do we need revival in a town where everybody already believes in God? And Edwards responded, he said, well, what kind of God do they actually believe in? Because he said, when I show them the God of the Bible, many times they respond by saying, no, that's not the kind of God I believe in. I believe in a God that's much more to my liking. And see, if you want to know God, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus he's the image of the invisible God. He's exactly what God is like because he is God in the flesh. But where do you get to know Jesus? In his word. The scriptures are the revelation of God. And so we're either going to ask God to fit into my idea of what he's like, or, and this is hard, we will relinquish control and let Scriptures shape our idea of what God is like, because this is where he's revealed. And look, I know this can sound self-serving, but this is why every week, when you show up on Sunday mornings, we look at the Bible. Specifically, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew so that we are looking not at what we think God should be like or how we imagine we think he should be, but actually as he is revealed in the Scriptures in the person of Jesus. That's where we should go with our doubts. But then the second thing is we should look at the deeds of Jesus, right? Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is saying, look, if you doubt or if you're offended by my, by my call to change, just keep watching me. Keep watching what I'm doing. And I don't know how that lands with you. I don't even know how all of this lands with you. Um, but sometimes I think we can feel like this. Okay, my doubts, I should go to Jesus. These circumstances are hard. <laughs> Jesus, it's a life of repentance. He keeps calling me to change. It kind of feels one-sided. Why am I always the one that's having to go to him? Why am I always the one that has to adjust? Why am I always the one that's having to change? Why can't God adjust to me? Well, I don't know if you ever heard the story. You can go look this up. His name's uh, Vitoly Pilecki. He was a Polish officer during World War II and uh, a non-Jewish person. Yet when he started discovering uh, during World War II the atrocities that the Nazis were doing in their uh, concentration camps, their death camps, He had such compassion, he decided he needed to do something about it. And what he did is he took the papers of a dead Jewish man and he forged them so that they were his identity. And then he let himself be discovered by the Nazis so that they put him in a concentration camp. And there, from the inside of a concentration camp, a non-Jew who made himself a Jew, essentially, started smuggling people out. And he did it for so long and he stayed for so long that finally his life ended by being beaten and killed by the Nazis. And when you hear that, I don't know how that lands with you. When I hear that, I think, what a hero. And what in the world would make somebody adjust their life so much that they would become like that so they could set people free? And look, I'm just going to kind of end by saying if Vitole Pilecki is a hero to you, and he should be, You haven't seen anything yet because the extent that God is going to adjust to rescue me and you is (laughs) mind-boggling. This is what Matthew's been telling. The beginning of Matthew says that God, this God of this universe adjusts so much that he becomes a baby and is born of Mary and makes himself dependent on his mom's milk. And he's born into a poor family and walks this earth as a a poor man. He's stooping so low that he... (laughs) He has calluses on his feet. And then it gets more offensive because as you get to the end of the book, which we're gonna get to uh, this spring, he lets himself be hung on a cross. The most offensive circumstance you could imagine is an innocent man being executed publicly, a symbol of shame. But it gets even more offensive. He's doing that because he takes my sin and my shame, and your sin, and your shame upon himself. So he gets treated as if he's me and you. This is the adjustment that God makes. This is the ultimate offense. Because when I look at the cross, so offensive is the cross that it says, he is dying like that because of who I am. (laughs) That my real self is that offensive and that full of shame that when it covered Jesus, it killed him it really is that offensive. But when I look at the cross, it also tells me, right, and this is Keller, that he adjusted that much because you're loved that much and you're treasured that much so that when he takes you on himself and he takes you into himself, he takes what we deserve so that three days later he can be resurrected and have you forever be free. And the cross is the place where I can look and see the most disappointing, the most discouraging uh, circumstance in world history, which is the innocent God-man dying on a cross. There's nothing darker in that. Yet, three days later, the resurrection means it brought about the greatest good I've ever seen. And so somehow the cross and the resurrection has to be the offense that shapes the way we view God ourselves and the world so that if i'm in dark and disappointing circumstances i don't have to make light of those but i can look at the cross and see somehow he brings light out of those places and the places he's offending me calling me to change i can realize he adjusted more than me and i can trust him with the transformation that i don't understand what he's doing he's that good you can trust him and so i'll end because i think the question that should be before us is the very question that john the baptist asks here's your question is jesus the one Or should you look for another? There's no greater question for you to sit with this morning. Is he the one? Or should you look for another? I'd invite you to consider that. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for uh, including in the scriptures uh, the doubting of John the Baptist. It's so encouraging to me to see that you invited his doubts, uh, that you met them with kindness, that you met them and said, blessed are those who do not just throw in the towels. Would you do that? Would you convince us for the first time or a thousandth time that you are the Savior of the world? that you love us, that the cross, yes, offends our pride, but it brings us to the great knowledge of Jesus. Would you do that this morning? In your son's name I pray. Amen.